Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. And welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Today we are looking at the phenomenon of the huge rise in Irish passport applications, which actually were up 70% last year and they've kept up that increased rate ever since. Yes, the, the rise began right after the UK's recent vote to leave the EU and it has mostly come from UK citizens, about half from Britain and about half from Northern Ireland. Uh, people in Northern Ireland, of course, have the same rights to Irish citizenship as people in the Republic. They can have both Irish and UK citizenship if they like. Yeah, and of course the people who apply from Britain are somewhat different, so they can apply through descent. That means due to an Irish parent or a grandparent. So we're examining the questions. Why are people applying? And what are the reasons for the policy of allowing people to apply through descent in the first place? We'll be speaking to applicants about their motivations for doing so, and to Irish people about how they feel about this big rise in people claiming Irish citizenship and passports. What does it mean for the country? We spoke to the Irish ambassador who had to handle the sudden massive increase as it started right after the Brexit vote, and it hasn't let up yet. They couldn't order in boxes of passport forms fast enough, apparently. All right, let's hear from the outgoing Irish ambassador in London, Dan Mulhall. Immediately after the uh, referendum last year, we were inundated with requests for uh, passport application forms. We had many, many tens of thousands of, of requests for forms, in some cases for multiple forms, and we had to send them out. And I, we estimate we may have sent out about 100,000 passport forms in the space of, say, a few weeks after the uh, referendum last year. And also, all of the Irish uh, centres in Britain, we uh, had trouble keeping their centre stock. Most days, I would see a consignment of, of passport forms coming in from Dublin, and then I would see a large bag of mail going out with passport forms being sent all over Britain. So that was a huge challenge. And what's your understanding of what's behind this rise? Well, you can only draw one conclusion because for the last few years, demand for Irish passports in Britain was pretty flat, which suggests the population had leveled out. And then uh, last year, the first half of the year, the demand was more or less what it had been the previous uh, year. And then the second half of the year after the referendum was shot up. So there's only one answer to that question, which is that uh, Brexit made a material difference. Now, I suspect that people were motivated by two considerations. The first being a practical one of people who felt they might want to study or work or just, um, you know, move to other European countries and wanted to make sure that they wouldn't be inconvenienced by Britain leaving the EU. And then the second group, probably a much smaller group, and nonetheless uh, significant, would be people who simply wanted to make a statement that I'm European and I, uh, and the way I can do that is by sort of taking out an Irish passport and, uh, you know, demonstrating in that way a European identity. I see. So you think it's more about a European identity than an Irish identity per se? Well, well, I mean, look, these are people who maybe in the past didn't seek to have Irish passports and they seek to have them now. That suggests that they see their Irish identity as uh, part of a wider European identity. So I'm not saying that they don't value an Irish identity. And many of these people may be people who had been thinking for some years, perhaps, about getting an Irish passport, but never got around to it. You know, these are children, grandchildren of Irish citizens, let's say, who may, say, who may have said over the years, yeah, I'd like to get an Irish passport, it'd be great. 
uh, and just never did it. And then were when the you know the Brexit uh, referendum occurred, they thought, oh, I'm going to do it now. It wasn't necessarily the only factor for people, but I think it was uh, maybe the factor that explains why it happened last year. And what does it mean for Ireland to have this new expansion of its diaspora, I suppose, with, with passports? But I think it's these are people, some, some of the people that I spoke to said, oh, I'm going to go to Ireland this summer um, now that I have an Irish passport. So there may be some benefit for our tourism, there may be some benefit for Ireland's standing and profile here in Britain, but I don't think it's going to make a huge difference because, because Irishness in Britain is much bigger than that. And what's your understanding of why this policy is in place, that people can claim uh, these passports through descent? Well, this is the uh, law and has been our practice since independence. And it's not unusual, by the way. I mean, uh, many countries have laws that, are, that allow people to claim passports through a grandparent. Obviously, not every country has it. Some countries are, are much more restrictive, but, but, it's, but it's, not, it's not that unusual, I don't believe. Uh, but I suppose, in our case, it reflects the fact that when the state was formed in 1922, we were a nation that had seen generations of quite substantial emigration. Remember, when the state was formed, it was only less than 80 years since the Great Famine and the huge surge in emigration that occurred in the 1850s and 60s following the famine. You know, there were a lot of people at that time who could still remember uh, the massive emigration in those decades. And in fact, that immigration continued throughout the late 19th century. And therefore, we were very conscious when we became independent of uh, our, our links with the diaspora. And one practical way of keeping the diaspora connected with Ireland was by um, allowing them to acquire Irish passports and allowing their descendants to perhaps come back to Ireland at some stage. Did you know, Tim, that according to the Irish Times, uh, the single busiest day in the Irish Embassy's passport office in London was March 28th. So that was the day before Theresa May triggered Article 50. Hmm. Yeah. And the same month, the demand for Irish passports from people with Irish heritage in the UK rose by 94%. Wow, that is amazing. I know, I know. So a lot of people that I spoke to from the UK said they were doing it because they wanted to keep their EU citizenship and the rights that come with it. I mean, part of the issue is that it's all up in the air and nobody actually knows what effect Brexit will have on that. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to stress that it's not the only motivation for many people. For some people, that Brexit event was a reminder of something that they had been planning to do for a long time. And and for others, it is a, a question of identity in that they wanted to get Irish citizenship because they didn't feel British exclusively. They felt a mix or they felt European or they felt in some way Irish. Mm. And the advent of this shock result of the referendum kicked off a process to the, explore that side of themselves and, and that heritage. Right, sure. And, you know, the figures are pretty stark, right? Like, so far in 2017, from Great Britain and Northern Ireland, there have been 84,000 applications for passports, and we're only halfway through 2017. Now, it doesn't sound very much, 84,000, but for Ireland, that's actually loads. Um, To put it in perspective, that would be the fourth biggest city in the country if all those people came together and lived in one place. Oh my god. I think yeah, like it that's just bigger than Galway. Sure. And and more striking still though than that. Uh the BBC tried to calculate how many people in total in the UK are eligible for an Irish passport who haven't got one already. Uh there's already 1.3 million people in Northern Ireland off the bat who are eligible. Uh but when you add in an estimate of those of Irish descent in uh, the UK, you come to 6. 
1.7 million el eligible citizens. And now that is pretty amazing because Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, only has a population itself of 4.7 million. Uh, this all came up because of a listener question, didn't it? Which was essentially about, you know, what what is the reaction of Irish people to this this phenomenon. Yeah, if you, if you listen to our last episode, maybe you might remember Daniel from Scotland, who was wondering about Irish attitudes to this recent surge in passport applications. I decided to get in touch with Daniel so he could share his thoughts in his own words. I'm Daniel Gallagher from Scotland. I live near Glasgow, which everyone near Glasgow just calls Glasgow. I took up my Irish citizenship at the end of 2015 because my dad is, he's Irish by birth and if you're born to an Irish parent it makes you Irish, um, but he was born outside of Ireland so that means that I'm not automatically Irish but I can just claim the citizenship so I've been registered as a foreign born Irish citizenship. So I started looking into it from about 2013 but never put a huge amount of haste into it until the sort of referendum was announced and I thought this might be the time to get it done just in case there's a rush afterwards. It's been a really interesting podcast. A lot of the stuff is things that it wasn't like I knew a little bit of some of this history but I didn't know any of this had happened which made me feel kind of bad then. It's like yeah you've become a citizen and you know nothing about the country at all and I asked whether or not people in Ireland had not so much a, a negative view, I guess, but any view at all of the fact that tens of thousands of British people were now suddenly claiming their Irish citizenship after the Brexit vote when they hadn't done so before, and whether or not that was viewed as sort of an opportunistic thing, and whether or not Irish citizenship was sort of being seen as a commodity from people in the UK. So I don't know what experience you have yourself in the UK, um, or the media in the UK. Like, the red top tabloids are pretty rabid and if there were 65,000 Irish people applying for British citizenship it would be a horrendous sort of feeding frenzy of all these tabloids. I just was hoping it wasn't sort of the same thing where people are being looked down on. It's a big diaspora obviously, it's to try and have a sort of Irish family internationally but I can't imagine the UK ever doing the same thing so I wasn't really sure how to picture another country doing that and I actually read a piece and I can't, I think it was political by Naomi about the fact that there, there aren't that many houses in Ireland for all the people that are trying to move there. I so was quite surprised in your last episode that like 80% of people are in favour of the EU. Thanks so much for talking to us, Daniel. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear his viewpoint. I think there is an especially interesting point there about the commodification of Irish citizenship here, uh, which of course, you know, isn't the intention behind this citizenship by descent law. From speaking to Irish people, the attitudes I've heard are a bit of a mix. So a lot of people are just not bothered about the passport applications. Like it's not, it's not something new. It's not a new law or anything. And it certainly hasn't set off any big debate uh, in Ireland about this law and the fact that people can apply. You know, some people do have a mild begrudgery about it, you know? So like for some Irish people, you can imagine, it can be threatening to their identity. So if person A, who let's say hasn't ever been to Ireland, can be on paper in the law as Irish as I am, does that devalue my identity in some way? And to get a general mood actually uh, around Irish people's feelings on this matter, I took a walk around Galway City in the west of the country a few weeks ago and I asked uh, people on the street what they thought about new Brexit applicants. Galway's quite a lively town and the local arts festival was in full swing so you'll hear a bit of the street entertainment in the background there and the and the seagulls which are pretty numerous too. So uh, let's take a listen to what Galwegians had to say. If you were to give advice to somebody who was becoming an Irish citizen for the first time, what would be your one piece of advice? 
I would look for that advice because I am English <laughs> living here, looking to get an Irish passport as well as my English passport. Is that true? It's very true, yeah. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. So, so you're looking for a passport right now? Uh, yeah. And you have an Irish accent. Have you lived here for a while? I've lived here since 2000, yeah. Moved over from England when I was 11. Never decided to change my English passport, so now I will be seeking both. For people who are coming over with an English accent and maybe not too much knowledge about Ireland, do you think that it would be a welcoming place? It depends where you go. Like, I came over and went out to Uchtarard, where it's a bit more rural and maybe not as accepting as it would be if you went to school in somewhere like Galway or Dublin. But I think that's changing. Even since I've been here, I think that's changed a lot. And you don't see it as much anymore. And if anything, people that come over maybe be proud of their accent as opposed to looking to change it. Okay, a lot of people who talk to us um, who are trying for a passport feel a little bit wary about this, a little bit um, apprehensive that they mightn't get a nice welcome over here. What would you say to them? I don't think there's any need to be any be apprehensive about it whatsoever i think it's a very accepting country i think there's a lot of different cultures here and yeah i, I wouldn't see any anything about, against it we're actually u.s citizens okay so i don't know if i have much of an opinion besides the fact that i would love to be an irish citizen someday Okay. I love Ireland. If you have an Irish background, even though you might not directly be Irish, I think if you have an Irish grandparent, I, I think you are still Irish, right? So being a citizen, I think is fair. I suppose Irish people are quite aware of their own heritage and know that Irish people have been accepted worldwide, so I think it's something that we want to pay back. As long as Irish people see, receive the same treatment over in the UK, I, I can't see why there'd be any bad feeling. Okay, do, do you think it's a difficult place to integrate over here? No, I think we're in Galway at the moment and Galway's a perfect example of a, a city that welcomes foreign nationals and actually that's one of the things that makes Galway such a great place when you, you walk down any of the streets here and you can instantly tell there's a mix of different cultures, different nationalities, and they all, they all add to the great fun. problem with people claiming their Irish citizenship if that's if, if that's what they want to do and it's their right as uh, descendants of people who are Irish. Fair play to them and welcome to Ireland. Don't hold back here, come on. No, I just don't, I just don't, I, like in the circle of friends that I have, you know, I don't feel like there'd be any ill will towards people coming to Ireland and, you know, the more the merrier. If this is going to uh, continue, do you think that the citizenship by descent rule should be changed? Uh, no, I think that's. <laughs> I think that's kind of kind of cool. Yeah, yep. I think that's kind of it's kind of a unique relationship between Great Britain and Ireland. For people, I suppose, as a lot of Irish people are probably anti-Brexit. It's like great, like there's a way for you to kind of get around this bad decision that's been made. Do you think there'd be less of a welcome for people claiming citizenship who voted for Brexit? No, I don't think so because I just think. People were misinformed, you know what I mean? P people didn't know what they were voting for, and if it was in Ireland, they'd just have another referendum and we could switch it back. But in the UK, it doesn't work that way. So people were, they were lied to, you know, some people made the wrong decision and they're regretting it now, no more than in America. This is a way that people are, are choosing to live with it. It was kind of go, well, I'm entitled to an Irish passport, I'll get one, and then now I'm, I'm, I know I'm safe if I need to go and work in Spain or, or wherever on covers. Okay, great. So the general response is welcome. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Look, sure, how long, how often were we going over there in the 80s? Show my god, we populated the country. Of course, we fucking, of, of course, there are people over there with us, like Jesus Christ. Should let them over, the more the merrier. I think maybe it's time to rethink the whole Brexit thing, and well, maybe yeah. people shouldn't have been so quick. No, the uh, old biddies that And maybe they should have, have like, so you know, quick. understood a little bit more about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can't really blame everyone because not everybody feels hustled at the same boat, but um, I don't think we should be so forgiving. But maybe like that might bring a change and everybody might rethink the whole Brexit thing, which I think they're doing anyway, aren't they? For people who may have voted for Brexit and now who are looking for Irish citizenship, do you think that they would be less welcome? Yes. No, I don't agree. I like, agree, absolutely. You've learned from, if long, as long as you can learn from your mistakes. Oh, Jenna, you'll like oh, this no, question. I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you alone now. I'll ask you one last question. If you could give one piece of advice to a new Irish citizen uh, who's looking to integrate in society, what's the most important thing to know? Don't tell us you're Irish. You're not. <laughs> but, but they will be, they'll have citizenship. That doesn't make you Irish. Okay, right, uh, anything else? Walk into a pub alone, go up to the bar, start a conversation with the barman and don't leave for three hours. Yeah, your, your heritage is your heritage, really. And not only through descent, but also if you're living here, that also, like, if you lived here long enough, those laws are there for a reason, they're, they're there and I think they're acceptable, they're reasonable. Um, I think that it's, it was like expected that a huge amount of people would um, apply for Irish citizenship, but I don't think like they should change the, the legislation or anything about it, because I think that's important to know, and exactly what he said about heritage, that that as well is an important aspect of it. Okay, and you guys said you grew up in Belgium, did you? Yeah, we did, yeah. And did you fi find it difficult to, to integrate into Irish society? And that's because we were looking at this huge amount of expats over there anyway, especially Irish expats. So even though we lived there, I was there 15 years, I still felt very connected to home, still very much the huge Irish community over there, and then when I decided to come back then for college, I, it didn't take me that long at all. Still though, we still feel very much a part of Belgium. Belgium accepted us with open arms, like all our the friends that we have and things like that. Like Belgium will always be home for us really, more so than Ireland. And it's weird how that works out, but it, it does. And because of all those things you mentioned about like, having an open community and having those kinds of things, like we can have Belgian citizenship now if we wanted to. That's a nice thing, nice thing to, to have really. Come to the west of Ireland straight away. Don't go, don't go east at all. Just come straight over here. It is the most beautiful part of the country as far as I'm concerned. And anything you need to know about the country in general is over here. Best part of the country. You're not the first one to say that. <laughs> uh, I see Cade Mielefalsha like, yeah, no bother. Yeah, just come to the west of Ireland and say, don't stay, stick to Dublin, but yeah, no, just yeah, take it easy. Welcome them. More than welcome to come. They're more than entitled to the, to the, to the passport. It's rules of our land, it's more than entitled to it. And they're more than welcome to come anytime they want to. No, they're entitled to the passport. They have Irish blood in them, so consequently, the rule of the land says they can have a passport, so we'll give them a passport. <laughs> stay, stay away from the Guinness. <laughs> stay away from the Guinness. <laughs> be themselves. Be themselves, yeah, and they'll be accepted like we're acceptable people and that, you know, and happy enough to have anybody here that uh, comes in and abides by the rules and, you know, like, lives peaceful lives and everybody's welcome. Do you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, but I am in total hurry. I've oh, got to meet somebody up well, One things. quick question then, are, are they welcome in your, in your eyes or not? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, entirely, definitely. Yeah. And would you have one piece of advice to new citizens? Wear sunscreen. <laughs> are you serious? I am serious. <laughs> You're wearing it yourself? Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good, thanks guys, good luck. Good luck.
god tim that is just amazing I, I think it's fair to say fairly like overwhelmingly positive response there from Galway tell me about it um I was really surprised myself you know and uh, honestly I was really fishing around for some negative comments to kind of give a, a bit more balance to the interview but I didn't find a single one so actually after I I did those interviews I wasn't that surprised anymore that the country showed 81% favor rates for EU immigration like we saw last week in our last episode yeah I guess it gives a bit of context to that figure um, mm. And yeah, these were just random people who you just picked, who you put a microphone in their face and spoke to, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, like, it should be taken into account that Galway is a university town with quite a young and international population. So. Yeah, and I guess it was also um, party time. It was some the arts festival or something was on, <laughs> right? So maybe people were feeling a bit relaxed. Why don't we hear from some of the people I spoke to who are actually applying for a passport about why they're doing that? So I spoke to a whole range of people and far too many to even include. Thank you so much to everyone who spoke to me and I apologize if you if you didn't end up in there so my overwhelming impression just to sum up was that the result of the brexit referendum really was fundamental uh, it caused a lot of people to reconsider their identity and i also spoke to people who who wanted really desperately wanted to apply but couldn't they'd missed it by a generation or uh, there was another who, who who said they would happily renounce their british citizenship if they could take any other eu country's passport instead and i think there is a lot of people at least i spoke to said they were uncomfortable with the political turn that the uk has taken and they do feel like they have less of a sense of belonging there Let's hear from some of those who I spoke to. So I'm standing in Camden with Joe, who's a doctor. Joe, how long have you been officially Irish or are you officially Irish yet? I'm not even officially Irish yet. So I applied for my passport, well, for like to register my birth at about Christmas time. And why did you make the decision to do that? So it's definitely linked with Brexit. Um, I think it makes you question your identity more. I have two grandparents that are Irish and my dad was the first of their family that was born in London. So his older brothers are all Irish. To say, oh no, you have an English passport, you have to be checked in at the border to kind of check yourself in as an English person going to Ireland. It just feels, if to define yourself purely as an English person wouldn't be, isn't the way I feel as my identity. It makes me think I don't know enough about Ireland. I probably haven't been over to Ireland as much as I should have. It's sort of thinking I haven't, haven't seen enough of Ireland, I don't know enough about Irish culture. And really, I should. You know, I need to have some background behind that identity. I've been on a road trip around Ireland recently. Did you make your road trip around Ireland deliberately because you were becoming Irish? Yeah, yeah it was like a celebratory, yeah, like Joe's homecoming tour. <laughs> I think it was nine days long. We went to 16 counties in the end. We drove through the north, we went up to Donegal, down the west coast. What was your impression? Of how much vitality there is going to like cities like Galway and Cork, which I hadn't been to before. I think it feels very bustly and very active and alive. And what was people's reaction when you said that you were coming back and that you had Irish citizenship? Generally positive, I think. My name's Helen Finch. I'm from Dublin, but I'm living in Leeds in the UK now. I lecture in German at the University of Leeds. Although I am Irish, I was born in Ireland. I lived there until I was about 30. I've always had a British passport. My parents are immigrants from Britain. They registered me with a British passport when I was a baby, and I've always had a British passport since then. I always felt a bit funny as a teenager queuing up outside the British Embassy and um, getting this piece of paper with a royal coat of arms on it. But I would try and squash that unease by going, well, we're all part of Europe now. The old divisions between Ireland and Britain mean nothing because 
national identities are dissolving into this really fantastic, open European identity. They're all Burgundy passports. They all entitle you to the same rights as a European citizen. But now that after Brexit, I've got a real sense of unease that's rising with using my British passport. I want to keep my European freedom of travel. I want to keep my freedom to travel to Ireland whenever I want to, to see my family. I have a daughter. I want to make sure that she's Irish and that she's European, has the same freedoms and privileges as a European citizen as I've always had growing up. I see Ireland as being a somewhat Republican, meaning in the sense that Irish identity welcomes the equality of all citizens, um, that it's a cosmopolitan kind of identity, that you can be Irish but still live in lots of places in the world, that you can be Irish and still come from somewhere else. I love the Irish language. Um, I love Dublin where I grew up. That's my home. So having an Irish passport expresses my identity in the sense of my my loyalty to the country that reared and educated me, where most of my friends live, um, where my parents still live, and which has welcomed my parents as English people and never made them feel until now unwelcome. Britain seems like a scary, inward-looking place, which is excluding foreigners, which is turning its back on the European dream. So I feel now that I have to choose. At the moment, I can still have dual identity, I can still have dual citizenship, but if it ever comes to it and I have to give up one or the other, I'm going to keep my Irish passport. My name is Hannah Roberts. I'm a freelance journalist living in Rome. I just want to have every base covered. My grandfather was born in Belfast. I wouldn't say I feel Irish, but I have spent quite a lot of time there because my uh, my parents lived in Dublin. I, you know, I have a real affection for Ireland and now that I'm going to be officially Irish, I would like to know more about the, the history of the relationship between the UK and Ireland, because I'm going to go about showing an Irish passport. I want to know what that means. Um, I'm Neil Black. I'm a, a doctor in um, Derry in Northern Ireland. Derry is very close to the border, but a lot of my colleagues come back and forth across the border, perhaps live on one side and work on the other. Suddenly there was a, a psychological shock of a separation where life had become so open and so free. I remember stopping at army checkpoints. That, that was right the way through Northern Ireland, but particularly at the border, there would be huge concrete bollards, army barracks and watch out points. Uh, for some people like us, we want to continue to be counted as European and not as separate. For me, um, Northern Ireland has, has been separate, separated from Ireland, separated from the United Kingdom because of geography and because of a difference in outlook. Whenever Northern Ireland was separated off physically, yet we were cut off physically from the rest of Ireland. And I don't want that feeling of separation for my family. My name is Brittany Pfeiffer Noble. I'm an American. I'm a doctoral candidate at Columbia University where I study Russian literature. My maternal grandparents both emigrated to Chicago from Ireland, and uh, my mother's side of the family has always heavily identified as Irish, although most of them at this point have been born and lived their entire lives in the United States. It was really my mom who spearheaded uh, me and my siblings all becoming Irish nationals because she realized that we could apply for it. For the past four years, my husband and I have moved between Western Europe and the United States. And so when we had our son in 2015, there was no question that we would um, immediately apply for his Irish passport, just because logistically it's much easier. Um, and, you know, we wanted him to be to be a real European when he was on European soil. And in general, certainly um, after the Brexit and just with the, a lot of the political changes in the past few years, since we don't know whether or not we will stay in Western Europe, we want to have as many kind of institutional ties to be able to be residents here in Europe as possible. Having the Irish passport makes our Irishness a little more real. And having the Irish passport makes me hope that 
my son will have opportunities to do things in Ireland. Maybe it's a pipe dream. I would love for him to learn Irish. I've tried it. I think my, my might be a little too old, <laughs> but he's young. So I, I still have hope that he might, um, he might be able to master the language or at least be able to read, be able to read Irish literature um, in the original, which would be my dream. I'm Connie. I currently live in London. I'd say my main reason for applying is, if I'm really honest, it's definitely to have an EU passport. I, I, w- I would have known that my grandmother was Irish. Um, because I grew up in France, my national identity is kind of, to a certain extent, quite fluid. The kind of concept of me feeling Irish, to a certain extent, is really nice. I like the idea of having a bit of a mixed heritage. I think the EU identity part of it is obviously the, the main part for me. My name is Michael Armstrong. I'm originally from Carrick, Fergus, which is a town just north of Belfast. I applied for an Irish passport really in a word because of Brexit. I was posted in Brussels at the time of the referendum. Really, there was a lot of kind of shock and, and sadness in the city at the time, and it left a real impression on me. The other thing that did was the the lack of any real thought or debate about how Brexit would impact on Northern Ireland from UK politicians during the referendum, and really in any real way since. So it was kind of a wake-up call, how little uh, Northern Ireland kind of matters in the grand scheme of things. And it's, it was totally different. There was a big contrast on the EU side because you had Michelle Barnier's team. They have like the Irish border as like one of their top three priorities. One of the things that I really took away from it was the extent to which continental Europeans kind of see the EU first and foremost as a peace project. And after Brexit, there was a real focus on the Good Friday Agreement as part of that history. I felt part of that. I wanted to remain part of that. Even if the UK was leaving the EU, I, I wasn't going anywhere. Coming from Northern Ireland, you're kind of a bit of a mongrel as far as national identity is concerned. You kind of don't fit in anywhere. There's elements of Irish society that feels foreign to me, more foreign than stuff like the BBC or the NHS. I'm of the generation that grew up after the Troubles. The, the Good Friday Agreement kind of gave you a freedom to develop and choose an identity or a mix of identities. Just, you know, get on with your life. Like, I'm glad to have my Irish passport. It's really nice. You know, coming through Dublin Airport uh, to be told by the you know the passport guys, welcome home. Of course, it's different in Northern Ireland. There, the issue of Irish passport is overlaid with the existing kind of divided politics and identity questions up there. Mm -hmm. So some really hardcore unionists who identify as British are very much against people claiming Irish passports because they see it as like Uh a a Republican agenda through the back door. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, surprise, surprise. But there was, um, it must be said, quite a striking moment when Ian Paisley Jr., I don't know if you saw this, but he's a member of parliament for the Democratic Union party and he's the son of the radical preacher of the same name Ian Paisley who founded the DUP. Ian Paisley the father was pretty famous for anti-Irish views and being like completely uncompromising as a unionist but his son Ian Paisley Jr wrote on Twitter quote my advice is that if you're entitled to a second passport, then take one. I sign off lots of applications for constituents. Wow. Wow, that has to be something pretty historic, eh? Well, that's how it was taken. I mean, there was headlines about this tweet. You know, it was amazing. I spoke to to one listener who got in touch. Unfortunately, the line on the phone was just too bad to play the clip, but he 
described this amazing moment when his unionist grandmother was uh, reassured by family members who were applying for passports by being told that Ian Paisley Jr. has said it was okay. Wow, so that has a major effect, really. Well, I think it is quite fundamental, yeah. And it'll be really interesting going forward because there is a referendum scheduled to extend voting rights for the Irish president to anyone who holds citizenship. I thought it was really interesting to hear Neil Black describe the moment when he travelled abroad as a teenager and he realised that Irishness wasn't something that was defined by your politics. Mm. Of course, Irish citizenship is a different thing to ethnic identity. So Ireland includes, of course, ethnic variety. And the very idea of the state was founded on the idea of including different traditions within it. So if you're an Irish citizen, then you are Irish from a legal point of view. I think personally, if it's great if people want to engage with the history and culture. But, you know, there is no actual measure of one person being more or less Irish than anyone else. If you have a passport, if you have citizenship, then you are Irish, regardless of whether you can, I don't know, pour a pint or make a good p- cup of tea. Right, sure. Yeah, I, I, I can guarantee you I pour a terrible pint in my, <laughs> in my limited days as, as a barman. Uh, but right, it, it, it's important to underline, actually, I think, uh, the way I see it anyway. Yeah, Irishness, you know, is defined by whatever Irish citizens do, and that's changing all the time. We, we are all actively creating and advancing the meaning of Irishness right now. You heard the guy in the, in the clip from Galway there saying, you know, oh, don't tell us that you're Irish just because you have Irish citizens. Citizenship. You know, personally, I would say the exact opposite. I would say, do tell us you're Irish, you know, because once you have that piece of paper, you, you've become part of the story and what you do is being included in, in what Irishness even is. Oh, I love that idea. And it is so true. Like culture is dynamic. It's not something that's preserved or frozen in aspect. It's actually constantly changing depending on the set of people who are around. And we are, in fact, creating it all the time. We did actually ask our listeners to weigh in on this question in our last episode. So we asked people to tell us, you know, what, what are their reactions to the wave of Irish passport applicants? And thanks so much to everyone who took the time to get in touch with us. Yeah, and we have to say that your reactions on the internet as well were pretty positive too. Uh, and there were lots of great insights as well. Here's one, for example, from Ben. So he contacted us from email from Washington, D.C. And he said he was born and only ever lived in the USA. But when he discovered he could qualify for Irish citizenship, then he basically looked at it as a way to connect with his heritage and also to honor his Irish grandmother, who was, he was very close to. So he said he already had a very deep connection to Ireland all his life and the citizenship registration just kind of made it official. That's lovely, Ben. And thanks for your message. Interestingly enough, some Irish people and also applicants for passport raised the question of whether there should be some kind of cultural test for people applying to have Irish passports, like some knowledge of Ireland test or even an Irish language test. There isn't anything like that. One applicant told me that she was actually finding digging out the marriage certificates and so on so difficult. She would actually prefer if she could just learn Irish and do a test in it. (laughs) <laughs> it must be very difficult to find those certificates indeed. It was also out of a genuine interest, you know, like hmm. she thought that it would be a better way of testing commitment. And um, it's actually something that she wasn't the only one to mention. So I heard from, I think, three or four people who said that they were exploring the Irish language in one, one way or another, like 
downloading the Duolingo app, for example, and one had even researched uh, doing a course in the Gale Talks region of Donegal. Wow. Yeah. Another comment uh, came in on Twitter. This one is from Michael Mulligan, and he noted that the citizenship by descent rule is all very well and good, uh, but that it's a double standard considering that some people who are born in Ireland to foreign parents are not automatically entitled to citizenship under the 2004 referendum. And this is a really good point, Michael. Uh, You're talking, I guess, of the 27th Amendment to the Constitution of Ireland. Uh, That amendment was approved by a referendum in 2004, and it controversially ruled that children born to foreign parents would not automatically be Irish citizens as they once had been. Okay, so under the amendment, basically a child's parents would have to have already been lawfully resident in Ireland for three years in order for them to be granted citizenship. The Fianna Fáil government at the time saw it as closing a constitutional loophole which had been created by the Good Friday Agreement. I can remember there was this very nasty talk of anchor babies. There was an idea that people Mm. could somehow get themselves into Northern Ireland and, and, and spawn merely with the idea of getting a right to stay in the country. It came at a time when Ireland was experiencing large-scale immigration for the very first time, it was seen as a knee-jerk reaction to that. Sure, yeah. And I also remember another term that was being thrown around a lot, uh, maternity tourism, which, I mean, I, I even remember thinking at the time how, how crass it was to talk about human beings like this. You know, these are mothers and babies. Maternity tourism is a very dehumanizing phrase. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, the, the greatest fallout, really, that was created um, by this referendum was that it created an entire generation of children born to foreign nationals whose status and rights were and continue to be very ambiguous. So, uh, in particular, children of asylum seekers have, as a result of that referendum, a direct result, uh, been forced to wait for years in so-called direct provision centres while their applications are being processed. Uh, which is just really crazily unnecessary and causes all sorts of profound long-term problems in areas like education and integration, as you can imagine. And as you can imagine as well, this only gets worse as the children grow up. We can have children who have lived in the country from birth with, you know, limerick accents or whatever, and they have to, for example, apply for university education as international applicants with the enormous fees unreachable for many of them that that implies. And it's quite stark to think that having an Irish grandmother might give someone more rights than having been born and raised in the country merely because of where their parents come from. Absolutely, yeah. There is certainly a double standard at work in the application process. So, for example, I know someone who recently naturalised as Irish. So this was someone who would always have considered herself Irish, didn't know any other home, had lived in Ireland since she was two, uh, married to an Irish person and with Irish children. So she went through the process of naturalisation to have a kind of, you know, legal certainty. And for one thing, it's much more expensive than getting, uh, than, than applying through descent. So it's about a thousand euro compared to maybe 300 euro. Um, and it's also massively onerous. So for example, she had to supply bank statements going back years to prove that she wasn't a burden on the state. God, that's crazy. And she was there since she was two. Yeah, yeah. Already with citizenship from another EU country. For me, it kind of raises the question, like, what is it about descent that our law values so highly? Like, why are dissent claims privileged in this way over, for example, you know, time living in the country or family ties like marriage or children? Yeah, it definitely brings up a whole host of questions, uh, which I suppose are inherent in the concept of nationality in the first place. Like, uh, you know, we have to face it that the whole idea of nationality is pretty arbitrary and difficult to define anyway. Yeah, and of course, contingent on the time in which it exists. Um, From my understanding, anyway, there's basically two rival concepts in citizenship law. So 
the two traditional ways of claiming citizenship or defining citizenship is just solely, which means the right of the soil. So that mm-hmm. gives citizenship to anyone who's born on the territory of the country. And that's like normal in basically the Americas, North and South. And then there's just sanguinis, which is more common in Europe. That's a blood right, essentially. Right. And many states have a, a kind of a mix of both. But Ireland has quite a strong just sanguinis in allowing citizenship to be claimed through a grandparent. But it's actually not unique, though, you know. It's quite common for countries to allow uh, uh, parents to pass on citizenship uh, to their children. You know, everywhere mm. from like Australia to Turkey and France. And a country that has quite a similar law to Ireland is actually Hungary. Oh, hmm. But the strongest version of this law is actually from Italy, a oh. fellow immigration uh, nation. So for Italian citizenship, it doesn't actually matter how long ago your ancestors left Italy. If each generation maintains their Italian citizenship through the years, you can claim to. It doesn't matter how long ago it goes. Similarly to Ireland, that emphasis on, on descent, it accommodates a big diaspora and strong links with the diaspora, but it's, it compares very disadvantageously to immigrants who have come to the country and their children who really have to jump through hoops. Yeah, so that's really interesting, actually. Tim, I've heard these suggestions over social media that, you know, maybe Ireland can't cope with an influx of people if there are going to be loads of new citizens, because there is a housing shortage after all. Sure, Um, like Daniel said. Yeah, Daniel brought this up. Essentially, my responses to this are like this. Okay, so number one, it is not clear to me that everybody who claims a passport is going to turn up in Dublin port. Right, certainly not. That's not the point at all. Yeah, and the second thing is, No one has been able to establish that were this unlikely thing to happen, if the returning diaspora suddenly all did come home, that this would be a bad thing. No, good point. And then the third thing is like the ability of the diaspora to return. That's very much on purpose. Like this is a deliberate policy. The Irish government is actually desperate for you to come. Mm. So they want you to come, whether to come back and work and bring your skills. There's actually a whole policy in place to attract people back or to come for a holiday, discover your roots. You might have seen Tourism Island uh, uh, targeting you with ads um, because, you know, they want you to come back. Um, We actually have a minister for the diaspora. Yeah, sure. And there was all this talk, wasn't there? Uh, Especially last year uh, with our former teacher, Kenda Kenny. He created a whole like festival at the gathering, uh, he called it, to try and lure people back for a holiday. And maybe, you know, they might buy a house and settle back down. Yeah, uh, Ireland totally sees its diaspora as an asset. And it totally makes sense if you consider, well, it's one way that a small country can have greater clout in the world. But Mm. also, if you look at our history, so the history of Ireland has actually been the struggle to get people to stay, not to keep people out. Right, of course. And and like we've mentioned a few times, the scale of emigration from Ireland has been enormous. In fact, by the beginning of the 20th century, the population of Ireland had actually dipped below 3 million, uh, which was less than half of what it had been before the famine 50 or 60 years previously. Uh, so at that point, Ireland was really quite drastically depopulating. Oh, so is this the answer to why there are possibly more people of Irish descent in Britain than there are on the island of Ireland. Well, it's part of it, of course. I mean, but if we go back far enough, uh, there has always been a constant transfer of people between the two islands, um, logically enough. Interestingly, actually, while history often focuses on invaders coming to Ireland through or via Britain, say the Vikings or the Normans or what have you, we also have to remember that Britain was largely populated as well by Irish settlers at different times in history. Really? Did you know, for instance, that Scotland means land of the Irish? Okay, vaguely. I had heard something about this, but I have no 
idea what it actually means. Please explain. Yeah, it, it comes from the word scotai, uh, which was a late Roman term for the Irish. Um, the Romans were probably talking about the Gaelic kingdom of uh, Dalriada, which uh, straddled the the western Scottish coast and the northeastern Irish coast. It was a, a kingdom that was on both islands. And people there would have spoken Gaelic. It was the kingdom where you would have found the island of Iona, which a lot of people will have heard of. Um, that's where the Irish monk uh, Columbanus set up his uh, famous monastery. And uh, the Scotti, uh, like we mentioned in our Catholic Church episode, uh, were, played a major role in Christianizing the people of the island of Britain, the Picts in the east of Scotland, and the Anglo-Saxons in Northern England. Wow. Mm. We have already looked at that close geographical and cultural relationship between the north of Ireland and the west of Scotland, but I didn't know it went back that far. <laughs> okay, but those of Irish heritage today were probably don't need to trace their family tree back quite all the way to Dalriada. Yeah, sure, right. The bulk of, Ir- of the Irish diaspora in Britain today uh, can probably probably trace their heritage to about the last 150 years. Okay, so this was, of course, the um, due to the famine that we mentioned. It's just like an unavoidable monolith in Irish history of that period. Yeah, and these massive migrations um, due to the famine uh, to Britain uh, were very unsettling for everyone involved. Ireland was, of course, under UK jurisdiction at that time, uh, but most people in England probably wouldn't have been prepared for just how impoverished and desperate the Irish people fleeing the famine were. And they wouldn't have been prepared neither for the sheer number of them that would be seeking refuge. Uh, In fact, by 1851, uh, almost a quarter of Liverpool's population had been born in Ireland. So you can imagine what a cultural shock that must have been. A quarter. Mm. And of course, loads of these migrants wouldn't have spoken any English. They would have been Irish speakers. You have to think of the context that British opinion was hardly um, favourable to the Irish at that time. Right, to say the least, right? Uh, Victorian Britain was a really unwelcoming place for the Irish in the mid-19th century. Uh, Many people at the time felt like the famine had been a drain on the United Kingdom's resources and that the Irish were getting a free ride from the government through starvation relief. Um, Mm, Some familiar echoes there. Yeah, sure, absolutely. There had also been another Republican Republican rebellion in 1848, uh, which was, of course, largely a response to the famine. So the old fears of Irish treachery and insurrection were being freshly uncovered at the same time. Tim, one of the things that your research actually focuses on is how there was a racialized element to all of this at the time, like those famous cartoons from the period that show Irish people to be like ape-like beings and a kind of a primitive violent inferior race. Yeah, for sure. And we'll definitely talk about this phenomenon uh, more in further episodes. Uh, British depictions of the Irish as monsters or cannibals is a tradition that goes right back to the earliest days of colonization. And in lots of ways, this tradition never really went away. And fascinatingly, in the 19th century, we can see this monster imagery being steadily translated into racist discourse, uh, which was, of course, growing uh, at that time. So in the British and in the American media at this time, we see the Irish increasingly being depicted as simian subhumans, biologically prone to violence and disorder. And you can still see traces of this archetype in caricatures of the of the leprechaun you see today. Mm. Uh, you know, who's of course dressed up in nineteenth century clothes. Um, it it mm. still even kind of lingers on in the in the paddy caricatures that's you know were still pretty common not so long ago. Oh yeah, and actually in current cartoons, if you check out the Daily Mail. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and also still common in the Daily Mail. Um, of course, uh, racism is a very handy way uh, to brush aside inconvenient political upheavals, and it's a very handy way maybe to, to demonize uh, thousands and thousands of uh, refugees who are arriving on your shores without really having to think about um, humanitarian causes. Uh, you know, it puts it all down to biology, as it were. Uh, it's also a profoundly effective way, of course, uh, to make civil inequalities or social inequalities seem like a product of the natural world. So yeah, it would have been really rough going for the Irish immigrants in that regard. I just can't imagine what it would have been like for those Irish immigrants. Like, imagine the culture shock. They would have gone through the trauma of having lived through a cataclysmic starvation. And then they would have travelled from what was a practically medieval agricultural world into what was then like the most industrialized nation in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And despite all this, they did settle in pretty quickly. In the 1840s and 50s, we see the developments of Irish districts in the big cities, uh, like Little Ireland in Manchester, or Kilburn in London, which is, you know, some people still call County Kilburn today. <laughs> <laughs> and there were, uh, of these districts were mostly slums, of course. Uh, we have to remember that these emigrants came with absolutely nothing, uh, and they were already half starved when they got off the boats. Engels, actually famously wrote about these Irish slums in his Condition of the Working Class in England. Um, that was uh, in 1845, where he says, quote, Whenever a district is distinguished for especial filth and especial ruinousness, the explorer may safely count upon meeting chiefly those Celtic faces, which he recognises at the first glance as different from the Saxon physiognomy. Oh, wow. Uh, mm. Yeah, you can always tell my house for it's a special ruinousness. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this tide of immigration to Britain, it, it kind of continued just unabated through the 20th century, right? So especially during the difficult eras of economic hardship that followed in independence, there's a, a significant wave that that's traceable in the 1950s and 1960s. So it's basically a time when the UK was rebuilding after the Second World War and it needed loads of imported labour. So there were immigrants from Ireland and there were immigrants from loads of other former colonies like Jamaica and so on. And they, they filled that gap and they went to work particularly in the public service, like things like hospitals and public transports and building projects. Right. So uh, about three quarters of a million Irish moved to Britain in the 1950s and 60s, which again is equivalent to a good chunk of the current population. Uh, so this is a massive movement of people. By the end of the 1960s, one in 10 nurses in the UK were Irish. Oh my goodness. Mm. Something that sometimes left out of the cultural memory is that a huge amount of these immigrants were actually young single women. Mm. And there were quite a few reasons for that. As we mentioned in previous episodes, like under the Catholic Church, Ireland could be a really restrictive and scary place for women in the mid 20th century. And Britain could be a safe haven for them, you know, trying to escape out of that world. It has a curious echo today because restrictions to reproductive rights in Ireland, North and South, means that it's it's still somewhere that women go off to on the boat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in the 1960s, you can only imagine what it must have been like to go from a world of Magdalene laundries into swinging 60s London, you know, with miniskirts and beehives and Carnaby Street and the whole lot. Yeah. Um, and of course, the vast majority of these migrants um, settled down in Britain and they did become an intricate part of the story of that country. Yeah, and so the Irish-British identity is a very strong one with a long history and pretty much any sizable town or city will have, you know, Irish associations 
um, which were, you know, had a really strong role in helping arriving immigrants. It's a history that's very much alive and with us. You know, I met a man um, in Donegal in his 90s and he had only learned English as an adult when he emigrated to London to work as a builder. Can you imagine what that would have been like for him? Incredible. Yeah. And it, it's another thing that struck me when I was living in Britain for, for a while was, you know, a lot of these stories were, they didn't turn out well. There's a lot of sadness there. I met a lot of people who had moved over and it just, it had gone wrong for them. But, you know, they couldn't go back to Ireland because, you know, they were ashamed to admit it or they, they just didn't have anything to go back to. Sure, yeah. And they became they became kind of exiles. You, you would often come across homeless people. I don't know if you've experienced this, but sure. you suddenly hear uh, someone with an accent and it sounds like they never left Cavan. You know? <laughs> it's not always like that, though. The immigration is often two ways and there's a constant sort of interchange over the years of people who go back and forth and sometimes it skips a generation. And of course, the diaspora were an integral part in the founding of Ireland's independent state. Yeah, right. Actually, yeah. Thinking back to our elites episode, we might think of the socialist activist uh, Michael Davitt, uh, who largely inspired the land war, uh, he spent most of his life in an Irish emigrant community in Britain. Uh, or maybe like the, the Irish revolutionary Maud Gahn. She was English-born and of Anglo-Irish descent, and she was a major figure in the War of Independence. Yeah, and there's just too many to possibly list, but there's just a ton of old rebels and Fenians and the survivors of failed rebellions would like base themselves abroad, raising money and trying to coordinate the next attempt. Mm. Um, and if you look at the cast of characters, Characters who led the 1916 Rising, you can see that. Just as an example, you had uh, figures like James Connolly, who of course was born to Irish parents in Edinburgh and ended up back in Dublin leading the Easter Rising. Yeah, right, yeah. But it wasn't just leaders, there were lots of kind of lower down figures as well. And there's one story in particular which I wanted to highlight, which I came across in the Bureau of Military History Archives. So essentially, those are essentially a big memory collecting project. Mm -hmm. So the Bureau of Military History was given the task of collecting witness statements and photos and evidence from all the people who were involved in the struggle for Irish independence. Um, this was in the early days of the new state, and it was done with the aim of kind of building up a state history. So all these uh, statements were locked away in secrecy, and they were only released into the public domain in 2001. And now, amazingly, they've been digitalized and they are online at bureauofmilitaryhistory.ie. Oh, great. We'll have to put that on the website. Some of the stories are just just amazing and they really kind of give you an idea of the ordinary human beings that were behind history. But there was one in particular which I felt we had to include. So it's the testimony of a guy called William Daly. He was born in London. His mum was from Kerry and his dad had Irish parents but was also London-born. And William Daly had actually scarcely left London itself, like let alone England. But he got involved with the Gaelic League, which was an organisation that promoted the Irish culture and language. Right, yeah, and we talked about that actually in our language episode, didn't we? Yeah, so when he was 21, in the middle of the First World War, he decides that he's not interested in fighting for Britain. Uh, he doesn't identify with Britain at all. So what does he decide to do? What does he do? He meets up with a couple of London Irish mates at Euston Station in London. He hides a rifle under his coat and he gets the ferry to Dublin with the aim of rebelling to form an independent state. This is from his testimony that he recalled some years later. Now for the turning point in my life. I was born in Dockhead, a rough and ready quarter of London. I knew nothing of Ireland, except in a hazy kind of way, until I joined the Gaelic League. So in a sense, I adopted Ireland as my own country until it adopted me at Easter 1916. 
I met Dave Begley and Jimmy Riley at Euston Station at 8pm. I had my rifles with me, one taken asunder, the other hanging under my long overcoat, and I had to stand the whole distance from London to Dublin. So just to fill in, what happens next is he ends up storming the GPO, which is the key point of the Easter Rising. Then the rebels hold buildings, which are all around the centre of Dublin, for roughly a week. And at a certain point, James Connolly, that leader who we mentioned, asked him to help to rig up a radio broadcast signal so that they can broadcast internationally that an independent republic has been declared. So here's how he describes that. Connolly called and told me to bring an electrician with me and report to Captain Breen, engineer officer in Reese's jewellery shop at the corner of Abbey Street. I got another London Irish lad, Johnny O'Connor, blimey, whom I knew was a spark, and we proceeded to Reese's. In answer to our knock, a fierce-looking man opened the door. I told him my instructions and he would not believe me. My strong Cockney accent put me in a bad position and Blimey's accent was even worse. And his red moustache bristled up and he dragged me in, presumably to make a prisoner of me, when suddenly a voice was heard, saying to the man at the door, It's alright Paddy, that lad is one of us. By the way, that was read by Terry Daly, a man of London Irish stock himself, whose grandfather had the same name as this guy, William Daly. Ah, brilliant. Thanks, Terry. As far as we can establish, uh, it's not the same guy. (laughs) Must be some relation. (laughs) Yeah. Could be. Relation unknown. So it's pretty clear then, after all that, that the diaspora in Britain have been pretty central to uh, modern Ireland. So why don't we have a look at where this citizenship by descent law came from? Right. Even though the state was formed in 1922, it wasn't until 1949, really, that this citizenship law settled down. That was the moment when the Republic was recognised internationally. So about seven years after, in 1956, the government brought in this new law, which offered citizenship not only to people within the free state, or the Republic as it was then, but also to people in Northern Ireland if they should want it. And this set up also the citizenship by descent rule which we have today. Uh, At the time, of course, this was considered a little bit controversial because lots of people in Northern Ireland saw it as undermining the border, you know. So if we look at how it actually works in practice, what it means is if you're born outside the, the island of Ireland, you are automatically entitled to citizenship if one of your parents is a citizen or Mm -hmm. if one of your grandparents was or is a citizen. It doesn't go any Mm -hmm. further than that. So you can't claim it from like a cousin or a great grandparent or something like that. Um, And you can also apply if a a parent or a grandparent is Irish born in quotes. So Irish born, Mm. you know, that's a way of saying if your parent or grandparent was born in Northern Ireland because the Good Friday Agreement. Is it a difficult process for citizenship by descent applications? Essentially, the way the Irish government keeps track of its diaspora abroad is something called the Foreign Birth Register. So basically, Irish people who have children abroad for whatever reason and want them to be in the system need to register the births, which you do through an embassy. People claiming passports through descent works in the same way. So you just have to basically catch up and put yourself on the foreign births register. And you can get an Irish passport application form from any consulate and they basically lay out what's required in each case quite clearly. It essentially requires proving the link that you have. So if it's an Irish-born parent or a grandparent and so on, you might need their birth certificate and you might need their marriage certificate. So it probably means um, a fair bit of digging around for documents. And, you know, it's a little bit of work, a little bit of concentration, but it's not excessively onerous. The whole process, you know, now that the waiting times are longer, can take about a year. Okay, all right. So there's no excuses, guys. I mean, we've given you everything you need. Uh, If you're eligible for one of these passports... uh 
get on it and you know we'll see you in Ireland yeah <laughs> we'll see you in Ireland uh, pints are on us actually no wait there's gonna be <laughs> no, like definitely not. 100,000 of you <laughs> maybe not <laughs> pints are on you Thanks so much for being with us. Actually, our next episode is not unrelated to this topic, and it's such a big issue. We're going to be looking at that great cataclysm of Irish history we briefly mentioned, the famine. And if you have any thoughts on this that you'd like to share or suggestions for subjects, you can get in touch on theirishpassport at gmail.com. Yeah, and we have our lovely Facebook site created by me as well, and on Twitter at at Passport Irish. Don't forget to rate our podcast if you liked it and do subscribe to get future episodes. Absolutely. By the way, thanks to everyone who has shared or recommended our podcast so far. Uh, Why not share this one, if you like, with anyone you know who has applied or is thinking of applying for an Irish passport. It might just help them out. Yeah, great idea. Let's form our own diaspora. (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us.